0: John 17, verses 1 through 5. Um, This is God's word to us this morning. When Jesus had spoken these words, that's everything he said in the upper room, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Existed. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of God endures forever. Well, this morning, about 8.30, I walked into the fellowship hall, and there was no one here. Joanne was practicing that wonderful organ piece for us. And as I walked into the fellowship hall, and I've never walked in at this season of the year, and at that time of day, the sun was breaking through the stained glass window so bright, brightly it was blinding. And yet, there was a rainbow bursting across the whole room. And as I was preparing to preach on the glory of Christ and Jesus praying here that the most important thing that we could want to know about, understand, and desire is His effulgent glory, I thought, wow, if God can display a little fraction of glory by the sun breaking through a multicolored window... What must the glory of Jesus be like when when we will stand before him and see the fullness of God shining in Christ? Uh, John Owen, some of you will probably know, who was called the Prince of the Puritan Theologians because he wrote more and deeper theology than the others, has one book that if I had to pick out of everything Owen ever wrote, there is one book that he wrote that is more important than all the others. It is the first volume in his works, and it has been shorthanded, The Glory of Christ. Um, Owen goes to great length in that book in expositing. Actually, I want you to look with me. It's an exposition of John seventeen twenty four. Notice that verse, seventeen twenty four. At the end of this prayer, Jesus says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am. Remember, he's been saying, I'm going away. I'm going to the Father. Now he says, I desire that those you've given me may be with me where I am to see my glory. To see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. And Owen is writing about that verse and he is going to the greatest length to help you understand why getting a glimpse of the glory of Jesus is the most important thing that you can ever have. Owen says this in that work. He says, one of the greatest privileges and advancements of believers, both in this world and in eternity, consists in beholding the glory of Christ. One of the greatest privileges and the things that propel you forward as a Christian in this life and forever is to see the glory of Jesus. There is nothing more important than that. Now, let me say this by way of preface, and then we'll look at this together I told you, I can go just as long. But um, unbelievers see nothing of the glory of Jesus. And in fact, they see something that they hate in him. By way of contrast, believers long to see more of what they get a little glimpse of when God opens the eyes of their hearts to see who Christ really is. Now, I want us to consider as we look at these verses together three things. First, I want us to consider that Jesus is praying for a manifestation of his glory. He's praying for a manifestation of his glory based on his eternal relationship with his Father. That's the first thing. Secondly, he is praying for this based on his work of redemption. And third, he's praying it on the glory that he anticipates. So the relationship he had with his Father, the work of redemption, and the future glory he anticipates. And and I think you're going to see that this passage divides quite nicely Into those three sections. Well, this is essentially Jesus's last will and testimony. If you could think about it that way, Jesus knows he's on his deathbed. He knows he's about to be arrested. He knows that he's about to be mocked. He knows that he's about to be spit upon. He knows that he's going to have thorns pressed into his brow. He knows that his hands and feet are going to be pierced. He knows everything that he came into this world to do. And what does Jesus do in his last will and testimony he thinks about you if you're a believer and he commits his people to his father isn't that marvelous when someone dies they want to commit their their most treasured things to someone who's going to enjoy it and who's going to keep it and value it jesus is entrusting those the father has given him back to the father In his last will and testimony. However, I want to point out something. I noted that this passage and this prayer falls into three sections. And and Jesus doesn't start out by praying about you, first and foremost. In these verses, Jesus, first and foremost, prays about his own glory. He prays about his own glory. He starts with himself and, and his Father's glory. And then in the next section, he prays for those the Father had given him, the disciples. And then in the last section, he prays for those who will believe in him. That's us. He prays for us at the end of the prayer, those who will believe. And, and, you know, in doing so, Jesus really gives us a good paradigm for prayer. I just want to say this as an aside. We, We first pray for our own spiritual needs, then we pray for those that are closest to us, moral proximity. And then we pray for others that they would come to know Christ. Isn't that interesting? Jesus moves out from himself to those who will believe. And yet he starts with himself, and I think he starts with himself because he wants to set the tone that he is really the great high priest of his people. I noted that this has been called the high priestly prayer of Jesus because remember in the Old Testament, the priest had the people's names written on his ephod, for the children of Israel. And on the Day of Atonement, on, on Yom Kippur, he would go into the most holy place with the blood of the sacrifice, the rudder of Hebrews says, both for himself and then for the people. And he would enter into the presence of God to represent them. Now remember, Jesus is going back into the presence of God. He is the true tabernacle. Remember, John said in chapter 1, verse 14, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Jesus is the tabernacle made without hands that was knit together in the womb of the Virgin Mary. He is. The one in whom God dwells fully. And now he is going back to God. He's going back to the heavenly sanctuary. And he's going carrying his own blood into the most holy place. He is going to, as it were, sprinkle his blood before the throne of God. And he's going to represent his people. He is the forerunner who goes before his people to represent them before God and to intercede for them, to pray for them. Now, The writer of Hebrews tells us that Jesus ever lives to make intercession for his people. What is Jesus doing right now? If you're a believer, he's praying for you. He is interceding for you. He is representing you. But here's a comforting thought. Even before he went to the cross, he prays this priestly prayer in anticipation of what he's going to do so that we would understand more of what it means that he's our great high priest. And the first thing that he wants us to see is that he is a more glorious priest than any other priest. Notice, he lifts up his eyes to heaven. By the way, Calvin makes the point that he does that because he is longing to be back with his father. He he feels like he's a man in a foreign country. He knows that he's in a foreign land. And he is longing for home. And so he lifts up his eyes. And I'll just... Read this to you too. Um, if I can find this, I can't. Calvin does make the point that Jesus is uh, recognizing the relationship that he and his Father have that is unique, that it is so interpersonal, it's inseparable. Everything that he's going to pray when he prays, when he prays that the Father would glorify him, he prays that the Father would also be glorified in him. It's the same glory. Now, what does what the word glory mean? A few weeks ago, I tried to explain in our Men's Theology Night, and I always feel like I'm failing when I try to explain the word glory, but here we go. What, what does the word glory mean? In Hebrew, in the Old Covenant, it's the word kavod. It means weightiness, heaviness, majesty. It's, it's, it's essentially saying God's perfections are so great that they can only be denoted by the word glory. So all that he is, all of his being, all of his attributes, all of his character, the outshining of them is the glory of God. Um, Notice Jesus recognizes the hour has come and he says, glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Now, do you remember when at the beginning of this book, John says in chapter 1, we beheld his glory, and he's talking about what happened on the Mount of Transfiguration, when Jesus' face shone like the sun and his clothes became white and glistening, and the divine nature, as it were, for a moment broke through. He was metamorphosized in the Greek, And, and his form was changed, and this is God. This is not like Moses with the reflected glory. This is not like Adam in the garden that would have had a shine about him before the fall. This is coming through the very eternal sun. And, and it's a little foretaste of that glory, isn't it, that we see in Revelation, right? His face shining like the sun. And, and all the saints being enamored and embraced in that glory. Now, on the Mount of Transfiguration, remember, Peter, James, and John, they, they were overshadowed by a glory cloud, That was God the Father, the same glory in the Son, in the Father, the Father in the Son on the mountain, shining the divine glory. And everybody that's with Jesus is, is consumed in that glory. And it's so impressive to the mind of the Apostle John that when he writes this at the end of his life, the first thing he says is, We beheld his glory. We beheld his glory. It's as if they couldn't get it out of their mind. Peter does the same thing. Second Peter, it's the last letter before he dies. He says, we were with him on the holy mountain. And we heard a voice coming out of the excellent glory. This is my son. Listen to him now. Jesus is praying for that eternal glory that he had with the Father. He is praying that the Father will glorify him now with the glory that I had with you. Um... You know, only, only Jesus can pray this prayer. This is not, first and foremost, a template for you to go home and pray better. This is very unique to Jesus. He wants the Father. The longing of his heart is that the Father would glorify him with the same glory that he had with the Father before the foundation of the world. Verse 24. Um Now, it's that Jesus is mindful that he exists as the Redeemer, as a man. He's God a man, but as a man, he is mindful that he exists to bring glory to his Father. Isn't that interesting? He's not just praying that the Father glorify him with that glory he had. He's praying that the Father would be glorified. He always has a sight to the glory of the other members of the Godhead. And everything that he does, everything he prays for, is to the end that he and his Father will both be glorified together. Um, You know, some people will say, if you focus too much on Christ, you take away from the other members of the Godhead. I strongly disagree. If you rightly focus on Jesus, he will always point you to his Father. And the Father will always point you back to the Son. So that the Apostle John can say in his letters, if you have the Son, you have the Father. If you, if you don't have the Son, you don't have the Father. Jesus has already said in this gospel, I've been working, my Father's been working. Whatever I say, I tell you what I heard from him, that there is perfect, unbroken harmony. And so even when Jesus prays this, he, he has a sight to the, the eternal union that he has in the Godhead with his Father. But notice this. Jesus also doesn't just pray this prayer so that we would be brought into a little avenue of the relationship between he and his Father from eternity, but he prays this prayer with those that the Father is going to give him in mind. Notice, notice this. He says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. Notice this. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life, to all whom you have given him. Now, um, if if you knew you were going to die in 18 hours, I wonder what would be on the forefront of your mind about the most important thing. When Jesus knows that he's about to die, because he says, my hour has come, and I'm going to be hanging on a cross in less than a day, The most important thing on Jesus' mind is the glory of God and the eternal life, the salvation of men. Don't miss that. What's on the mind of Jesus is eternal life. He is very much telling us that the most important thing that you need is eternal life. It is the single most important thing that we should have our minds wrapped around. Why did Jesus come from eternity? Why did he take frail humanity to himself? Why did he give up that external glory? Why did he take the form of a bondservant? Why did he why did he have no form or beauty that we should desire him? Why did he humili- Why did he humble himself so much? Why did he subject himself to so much humiliation? Why would he leave the glory of eternity as God over all? Why would he leave that to come to this dark, fallen, wicked world? He came to bring eternal life. Notice he says... Uh, that the Father had given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all that you have given him, that Jesus is sovereign. If you have come to know Christ, if you have become the the recipient of eternal life, it's because Christ has sovereignly bestowed that on you. Um, But when he prays for that eternal glory, he does so by linking it to the mission for which he came. Um. I want us to consider now, related to that, the salvation for which he was sent. He's praying for this uh, glory of he and his Father because of the salvation for which he was sent. And, and here's the quote I wanted to say. When Calvin is noting um, Jesus lifting up his eyes to heaven, he says, By this attitude Christ testified that in the affections of his mind he was rather in heaven than on earth, so that leaving men behind, he conversed familiarly with God, but he looked toward heaven because it is chiefly that his majesty is displayed there, and he is wanting to bring his people there. You see, he's wanting to take those the Father gave him to be with him. He says that at the end of this prayer, that they may be with me. Um, That's an awesome thought, isn't it, that Jesus wants you, sinful though you are, To be with him. Nothing nothing good about us. We sang this morning, two things I confess, my worth and my unworthiness. I'm unworthy in and of myself. I am, there's nothing that commends you to Christ. Nothing. Not your faith, not repentance, not prayer, not worship attendance, not reading your Bible. Nothing commends you to Jesus The Father gave his people to the Son for the Son to redeem. Now, I want us to consider then Jesus praying here for a manifestation of his glory based on the work of redemption. Notice he has talked about the hour. Now, we've noted that that has been a phrase, the hour. He knows that his time has come, he knows that for which he has come into the world is upon him. Remember, there were times where Jesus said, My hour is not yet. Well, this is the hour. In fact, I'm going to argue this morning, when Jesus says the hour has come, he is saying that what he is going to do on the cross and in the resurrection is the single most important hour in human history. You know, uh, the comedian Louis C.K., please don't watch this. I'll just go ahead and put that out there. Um, But he has a comedy special where he says, you know, he says there's a lot of religions in the world, a lot of religions, and he says, but you know, one of, them, one of them wins, Christianity. Christians win. And the people are kind of sheepishly laughing because they know it's true, but they hate Christ. And, and he says, why do Christians win? He says, B.C. and A.D. Same, say his name. And they say, Christ. Not out of affection, but the point is the hour had come, and this hour is the most significant hour in human history because it is going forever to shape what happens in the world for the redemption of God's people. You know, 2,000 years later, we're sitting here in Charleston talking about the glory of Jesus through his death on the cross because his hour came, and he went forward courageously for our redemption He went forward courageously for your redemption. He didn't cower back. Nobody ever suffered anything like the Lord Jesus. He would fall under the full wrath of God for your sin and my sin. He would drink the cup to the full that the Father would put in his hand in the garden, the cup of wrath. He would drink it to the very dregs. And yet Jesus does not shy away from what he came to do to redeem you so that he could now pray Father, glorify your Son because, notice this, notice this, notice verse 4, I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Now, you may say, well, wait a minute, Jesus hasn't yet been nailed to the tree. How did he, how did he accomplish the work that the Father gave him to do? He hasn't, he hasn't yet been crucified. He hasn't yet cried out, it is finished when he hangs on the cross. And yet, because he is the eternal son, because he is God in the flesh, because he was entering in on his sufferings and he was going forward as the seed of the woman coming to conquer and triumph over the serpent, he could say to his father, it's as good as done. I have finished the work that you have given me to do. Now glorify me because I have done that. You know, um, the world looks at the cross and they see weakness and they see baseness and they mock it and they deride it and they don't see any glory. Because when you look at a criminal nailed to a tree, there's not a lot of external glory. Jesus' face isn't shining like the sun when he's nailed to the cross. He's got blood streaming down his face, he's got spit on his face, his back's been scourged open. He's had his hands and feet pierced. He's had his side pierced here soon. The sun is darkened. The earth is quaking. There's no external glory. And so it's tempting for people to look at Christ crucified and say, there is no glory. That's Ichabod. There is no glory. And yet, I'm going to argue That while there is no external glory on the brow of the Lord Jesus when he was crowned with thorns or on the hands and feet with Jesus pierced with nails or in the back of Jesus torn with a whip, all the divine wisdom and power shines with glory in the souls of those for whose sins he died. So that when I look at the cross, I see all the attributes of God, his truthfulness, his justice, his goodness, his mercy. All of his attributes meeting up in the death of the Son on the cross. And remember I told you, glory is the outshining of his being and character. And there is nowhere where you see the character of God and the glory of God so fully manifested than at the cross. You know, I'd like to encourage all of us this morning that we would pray that the Lord would make us to see the glory of Christ crucified. Because it's everything. If you long to see more of the glory of Christ, that's where you go. You go to the cross. You know what's interesting? John, this John, is going to have that that vision in Revelation where he he sees the heavenly throne room. And and who does he see seated on the throne of God? He sees a lamb. Who is is the glorified one on the throne? the throne, it is the lamb as if he had been slain. It's not interesting. That's where the glory is. In heaven. Jesus, the lamb of God, sacrificed for sinners, is going to shine in glory based on the work that he does in redemption. You know, I, I could give you a sermon and give you like 10 points about how to have a better marriage, better finances, be healthier. Well, maybe not me with health, but I could give you a list of things. My wife just laughed because it's true. I could give you a list of things that you could do and you could say, oh, that's great. My life can be better now. And your life will be no better until you see the glory of Jesus on the cross for your sins. Your life will not be any better no matter how much self-improvement you try No matter how regimented you are, no matter how smart you think you are and how much you can advance, until you see the glory of God shining in the beaten and bruised face of Jesus on the cross for your sins and my sins, you will be no better. And you'll miss it. You'll miss it. I want to say this finally. Jesus is also praying for a manifestation of the glory that he anticipated. Notice, he says to the Father, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. He knew he was going back to the presence of God. He knew that God had promised that the reward of his work was going to be an eternal manifestation of glory, so much so that in the new heavens and the new earth, the Apostle John can say there was no sun there. Remember I said, watching the sun, Break through that stained glass window was a tiny manifestation of the glory of God. There is no sun there, but the Lamb is its light. Jesus was longing to be the light of glory for his people. You know, we, we are so dim in our souls. We, we just want all the dimness of lesser things. Vacations, houses... Restaurants, I do, we do. And Jesus is here trying to lift our thoughts up. And he is saying, there is something greater I want you to fix your gaze on. There's something I came from, there's something I died for, there's something I'm going to. And I want you to be with me to see that. I want my Father to be glorified. I want you to be redeemed and have eternal life. And I want to take you to be with me. Now, if that sinks in more than just intellectually into our souls, that changes us. That makes us long for that. It changes the way we pray. It changes the way we interact. It changes everything. You know, I love at uh, the transfiguration. I'll leave you with this thought. Um, Moses and Elijah come back. And they're there with Jesus, and his face is shining, and, and Luke tells us they're talking. And if you read the other gospel writers, they say they talked with him, but they don't tell you what they talked about. Seems like a pretty big deal. If Moses and Elijah are going to come back from heaven after so long and appear on this mountain with Jesus, what they talked about seems like that would be a really important thing for us to know. And by God's grace, the Holy Spirit has told us through Luke. Thank you, Luke. And in Luke nine thirty one. It says they spoke with him about his exodus that he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So when Moses and Elijah come back from glory and they're with Jesus, the thing they want to talk about is the redemption that he accomplished at the cross. And that means if I see the glory of Christ in any way whatsoever, that is going to be what I want to think about, meditate on, Speak about it's going to shape our lives, right? We're going to have a, a, a cruciform life, a cross-shaped life. I want to encourage you all this morning that as we listen to the Lord Jesus in this prayer, that we would, we would desire to value what he values. We would, long, we would long to realize that God is doing all things for his glory, the Father and the Son together. Christ came to manifest that glory, that Jesus died to receive that glory again, and Jesus has entered back into that glory through the ascension. You know, Psalm 24, I'll leave you with this, Psalm 24, it's a famous psalm in church history because the writer is, is wrestling with who can, who can go to glory, who can enter into glory, and, and he says, he who has clean hands and a pure heart. Well, I'm sorry, y'all haven't. You have not had clean hands and a pure heart. Neither have I. And, and then at the end of the psalm is the solution. Who does enter in? And, and, and in this sort of antiphonal choir of a host of heaven, it says, um, Lift up your heads, O you gates, and lift them up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall go in. Who can enter in? The Lord Jesus Christ, the King of glory. He went through the gates. He opened the way. He has authority to give eternal life to all that the Father has given him. He has atoned for our sins, and he wants us to be with him where he is. I hope that you'll be encouraged to be meditating on these things and to be praying that God would show you more of the glory of Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are so weak, our hearts are so dull, we do not see as we ought. Lord, there may even be some here who are unregenerate, who have never seen your glory. We pray that they would cry out that you would show them your glory. We pray for us as a congregation that we would be people who long above all things to see uh, the, the glory of the Lord Jesus at the cross and in his ascension. So Lord, would you do what you alone can do in our souls? Would you answer this prayer of the Savior for us in this place at this time? We pray that you would make us to long to be with him, where he is, and to see his glory. So, Lord, would you do these things for us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.